Today's scripture is taken from the book of Mark, chapter 7, verses 14 through 23. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull? he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on. What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. This is God's word. So we keep on looking at uh, life of Jesus in the book of Mark. Tonight we come to a controversy between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day about the clean laws, about the the dietary laws, and all the various uh, regulations that had to do with ritual purity. And on the surface, as you look at this, it would be very easy to believe that this, is, this controversy is just simply arcane, irrelevant for us now, maybe of some kind of antiquarian interest, but surely not thing that's really important for us to know about now. And if you would think that, I think you'd be wrong, because that's a very superficial analysis. Actually, this text is talking about matters that are profoundly relevant for living the human life in any culture, in any century. There's three things I think we're going to find that the text teaches us. First, that we all have a sense of uncleanness. Secondly, that we can't cleanse ourselves however hard we try. And thirdly, it's Jesus who can cleanse us. That's what the text teaches us. We all have a sense of uncleanness, We cannot cleanse ourselves, however hard we try. It's Jesus who can cleanse us. Okay, point one. First, first of all, we have a sense of being unclean. Now, I just said that the the subject over which Jesus and religious leaders in this passage are arguing are the Mosaic clean laws. If you touched a dead anything, animal or human being, if you touched a dead body, If you had an infectious skin disease like boils or rashes or sores, if you came into contact with mildew, your clothes, uh, articles in your, uh, uh, your home or even in your house itself, if you had uh, any kind of bodily discharge like diarrhea uh, or a hemorrhage of blood and pus, or if you ate food uh, made of animals that were designated as unclean, like the pig, you were considered ritually impure, defiled, unclean. Meaning what? It meant you couldn't go into the temple. You couldn't go in and worship God with the community. You were unclean. You were defiled. You might say, well, what, what, what was that all about? What's, what, what's with that? And the answer is it's not as, not as weird as it sounds if you think about it. For example, People physically fast. Why? Some people physically fast 
It's an aid to developing inner spiritual hunger for God. Some people physically kneel. Why? It's an aid for developing inner humility toward God or anyone. So you physically kneel in order to develop the inner sense of, uh, of humility. Or, in this case, what's all the washings and what's all the, the effort and all the, uh, all the tremendous amount of effort to always be clean and free from dirt and free from disease and uncleanness? It's an aid, you see. It's a visual aid. It's a physical thing that enables you to develop the recognition that we're spiritually and morally unclean and we can't just go into the presence of God unless there's some kind of spiritual purification that goes on. Now, this isn't as, as weird as you might think. Again, uh, for example, if you're going to go see somebody who's really, really, really important to you, you wash, you floss. Oh, yeah, especially before that big date. What are you doing? You're getting rid of the uncleanness, of course. You don't want, you don't want a speck on you. You, know? you don't want to smell bad. You, 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 you scrub and you floss, and God says, it's the same thing with me. Spiritually, morally, unless you're clean, you can't live in the presence of God, a holy God. Now, I want you to consider something. Before we move on, we need to realize, in fact, I think I realized as I was studying this passage, it's easy to miss this. Jesus disagrees with the leaders of his day about the source of the uncleanness, and he disagrees with the leaders about what to do about the uncleanness. And by the way, those are points two and three. But the thing he doesn't disagree with the leaders about, and something we've got to make sure we don't miss, is Jesus is saying that we are unclean. That is to say, we are unclean before God. We're not fit for the presence of God. Because see, at the end of verse 16, he says, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. At the end of verse 23, all these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. So he's saying, we are unclean. You know, he differs about a number of issues, but not about that. We are unfit for the presence of God, according to, uh, to Jesus. In our natural state, we're unfit. And that is a problem for us modern people. And I think we need to spend a moment or two, at least, considering it. Uh, do you know that most modern people have a problem with this, this idea that we're unfit for the presence of God? And I think a lot of folks would say, okay, okay, ancient people, yes. Ancient people understood God or gods as wrathful, they always had to be appeased. Ancient people found the world a scary place, didn't understand the way things operated, and they felt that there were these moral absolutes and there was these wrathful deities and I always had to appease them. And therefore, ancient people were always guilt-ridden and shame-ridden, like Lady Macbeth. Now, there's, a, there's the classic case where a person's conscience, guilty conscience, expresses itself in terms of uncleanness. Remember, she, she sees her. It's, a, it's fascinating, of course. She, she looks at her hands, and she thinks she sees blood on them, and she can't get it out. So she says, out, damn spot. And even uh, Macbeth, the husband, when he's trying to get some kind of relief for his, his wife about her guilty conscience, says to the doctor, canst thou not, with some sweet, oblivious antidote, Cleanse the bosom of that perilous stuff which weighs upon the heart. Cleanse. My wife needs cleansing. She says, I need cleansing. Ah, yes, guilty conscience, shame-ridden, guilt-ridden. That's for then. This is now. We're different. Here's how the objection goes. We're different. Because we live in a day in which who's to say what is right and wrong? Nobody knows who, what's right and wrong for certain. Nobody knows about God for certain. We all have to decide that for ourselves. 
And everybody's got to come up with their own standards and, and not be held to some other standards. And besides that, we modern people believe in human rights and, indiv- and, the, and the dignity of the individual. We don't see the individual as unclean and vile and defiled and evil. We, we think human nature is basically good. So we don't have this sense of uncleanness that the ancients had. No, I think that's wrong. I think that's a superficial analysis. And one person who I think has shown that that's a superficial analysis is one of the great writers of the 20th century, brilliant and very weird, Franz Kafka, who in his book, I'm especially thinking of his book, The Trial, explains this. Now, The Trial, by the way, is a fine book, but it's, it's been made into a movie twice, and it must be incredibly bo- They must both be so boring. And I'll tell you why. Here's how the book goes. In the beginning of the book, Joseph K. is having a normal life, but on the, in the very beginning of the book, he is arrested, and he's taken into custody, and nobody tells him what he did wrong. What am I arrested for? What have I been accused of? Nobody tells him. And so he goes from one kind of custody to another, to another detainment, to a hearing here, and nobody ever explains it. Everybody is very grumpy. Everybody's very hard. Everybody, everyone is very implacable, unsympathetic, officious, you know, saying, you have to talk to my supervisor. I've got my orders. So he goes from episode to episode, hearing to hearing, custody to custody. Nobody ever tells him what's wrong, and he starts to think about his whole life. And he says, maybe it was for that. Is, I'm, I've been arrested for that. I did that. that. That doesn't seem like it would have been bad enough, but maybe would this happen? So he's going through this entire book, never being able to know what he was accused of. And in the very end, the very, very end, one of the people that has him in custody, one of his wardens, stabs him to death, and he dies. And that's how the book ends. Wouldn't that be a great movie? You know? What a movie. A summer blockbuster. He's arrested. He never finds out what he's arrested for. Until the end, they kill him. And we never find out what he's arrested for. But it's a powerful book, and here's why. Kafka actually said in one of his diaries what the book was about. He said in a diary... The state in which we find ourselves today is sinful, quite independent of guilt. Kafka says, see, we live in a world now where we don't believe in heaven or hell. We don't believe in sin. We don't have these categories. And yet we still feel that there's something wrong with us. Kafka is really on to something. He says, in spite of the fact we don't have these older categories, we still have a kind of deep, profound inescapable sense that if we were examined, we wouldn't pass. If we were inspected, we'd be rejected. We have a deep, profound sense we've got to keep. We've got to hide, or we've got to at least control what people know about us. We have a deep sense that we aren't acceptable. In some way, we're going to have to prove to ourselves and other people that we're worthy, or that we're okay, or that we're lovable, or that we're valuable. See, let me ask you some questions. Why do so many of you work way too hard and you're always saying, if I just get to this level, then I can relax, and you never do. You just work and work and work. What, what is driving you? Why is it that some of you can never disappoint anybody so you have no boundaries? No matter what people ask of you, they'll exploit you, they trample all over you because for you to disappoint somebody is death. Why? Why does that bother you so much? What, where are all the self-doubts coming from? Why are, you so, why are people so afraid of commitment? What is it? And Kafka's saying, you don't believe in sin. You don't believe in heaven or hell. You don't believe in anything, and yet you know somehow you're unclean. Somehow 
that you're not up to specs. You call it complexes. You say, my parents didn't love me enough. You know, you, you, you psychologize it, but there it is. We all have a sense that we're unclean. We're covering, we're hiding, we're working like crazy to do something about it. We all have a sense, even us, even now, that we're unclean. But secondly, we're all trying to cleanse ourselves. So the first thing is we all have a sense of uncleanness, but the second thing we learn here is that every one of us is into a form of cleansing ourselves, which Jesus says here will never work. Now, the place where Jesus says this is here in verse 18, 19, where he says to the disciples, don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? It doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach and then out of his body. And then verse 21, it's from within, out of men's hearts comes evil. Now, what, they, what, what Jesus is saying is rather simple. We are, what's wrong with us? What's really wrong with the world? Why, do, why is the world a miserable place? Why do we have all this strife that we have? It's the heart. It's the self-centeredness of the human heart. And he says that, as hard as we try, through washings or dietary laws or through external observances or trying really hard to be good, everybody tries on the outside to deal with the heart, and that won't work. He says, we're all trying to go outside in. Now, he speaks very vividly here. I don't know if you see just how vividly he says it in verse 18, 19. He says, even when you eat clean foods, he says, it goes in the mouth, down the stomach, and then it says literally out into the latrine. Now, what he's saying is, you know, the food goes in the mouth, into the stomach, out the anus, never gets to the heart. And what he's saying is, external observances don't deal with the soul. And all of these things that you're trying to do in order to get to cleanse yourself won't work. Outside in doesn't work. If you do all these things on the outside, somehow it'll affect the inside soul. It doesn't work. And you say, okay, 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 okay. I, I, I can imagine that all these rules and regulations and, of cleanliness and, 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 and the dietary laws really didn't affect the heart and didn't change the self-centers of the heart. I can understand that. Yeah, I can see why he said that these things don't work anymore. But I would like not to let you off the hook that soon, please. I would like to propose to you that we're all trying to deal with that sense of uncleanness, and we're all working outside in. We're all trying to cleanse ourselves. We're all trying to do something that Jesus says is basically impossible. Let me give you four examples. And I, I hope to include everybody, including myself, just to show you. This isn't all of them, but this, is, this shows you the range. First of all, religion itself. All the world religions and most of the people that go to Christian churches are working outside in, futilely, ineffectively. Why? Here's how religion works. Religion says works outside in. It says, if I do all these things, if I stay away from dirty movies, if I stay away from profane activities, if I stay away from bad people, if I pray, if I read my Bible, if I try real hard to be good, if I do all these things on the outside, then God will see that I'm worthy and come in and bless me and heal my heart and fill me with his blessing and love. Outside in. If I do all these things, God will come in and bless me. But of course, as Jesus is saying, that model doesn't work. I'll tell you why it doesn't work. You never know. You never feel you're good enough. You can go into these times where you're reading the Bible and praying and trying your very best to be good. And you know what? It doesn't change the heart. It doesn't fill you with a feeling of love and joy and security. It actually makes you more and more anxious because you always wonder whether you're living up. And when something goes wrong in your life, 
you'll immediately be throwing it out. You'll say, oh, I thought I was living a good enough life. Why did God let this happen? Oh, maybe I wasn't living a good enough life. Maybe I'm terrible. How do, I, how do you ever know? It never, you never know. Religion doesn't work. It's outside in. It doesn't really strengthen and, and frame and, and establish and, and change the heart. It doesn't get rid of the self-justification, the self-centeredness, the self-absorption at all. It just makes it worse. Religion. You say, well, I'm not religious. Okay, number two. Politics. Believe it or not, politics tends to work outside in as well. How? Uh, right after World War II, uh, and it happens every so often, but right after World War II, a whole lot of British political intellectuals uh, found their entire worldview shattered by what happened in World War II. And uh, why? Here, let me read you some of the, the British intellectuals right after World War II. C.E.M. Jode, who was a British socialist and a philosopher and an atheist and an agnostic, in 1952, just before he died, brought out a book called The Recovery of Belief, in which he came back to belief in God. And here's what he said. He says, It was because we rejected the doctrine of original sin that we on the left were always being so disillusioned. Both the behavior of the people and of the leaders were inexplicable to us because we didn't believe in sin. And then the Lord David Cecil puts it this way. This is after the Holocaust and World War II. He said, The philosophy of progress had led us to believe that the savage and primitive was behind us, but it turns out it was within us. And Dorothy Sayers, who had lived at the same time, says, We were given to believe that we are basically good. Human beings are basically good, evolving higher, essentially teachable. And so the appalling outbursts of bestial ferocity in the totalitarian states, the stupid endless greed and exploitation of capitalist society were inexplicable, not just shocking, and not even just alarming. They were the utter negation of everything we were led to believe. Now, what all these people were saying was, for the last, in fact, Dorothy Sayers in her book, Creed or Chaos, comes out and says, over the last 100, 150 years, politics, conservative and liberal, has operated on this basis. What's really wrong with human society is not in the heart. It's social structures. It's a lack of education. It's a lack of uh, applying religion and technology. And if we're able to do that, then human society is going to be great. But what happens, especially after things like the Holocaust and after things like uh, World War II, and it happens all the time. History is littered with disillusioned people who thought capitalism will make us better and socialism will make us better and this will make us better, and it hasn't. It hasn't. The sin of the human heart just expresses itself differently in every one of these things. See, generally, the idea that politics is the answer to human problems is an outside-in approach. It won't work. Well, you say, I'm not really into religion or politics, all right? Let me try. How about popular culture? Some years ago, a woman named Christina Kelly wrote an amazing, I thought, little confessional. Now, Christina Kelly is a very um, successful editor of young women's magazines. So she's been the editor or, you know, at the t- or on the staff of uh, L Girl, YM, Jane and Sassy magazines. And a lot of you guys are saying, those are magazines. Yes, they are magazines. And Christina, but Christina Kelly, if you know anything about those magazines, and if you're a woman, you probably do. If you're men, you may not. But if you know anything about those magazines, you'll be amazed when, what Christina Kelly wrote some years ago. She says, why do we crave celebrities? 
Here's her, my theory. We, to be human is to feel inconsequential. So we worship celebrities and we seek to look like them. All the great things they have done, we identify with in order to escape our own inconsequential lives. But it's so dumb. With this stream of perfectly airbrushed, implanted liposuction stars, you have to be an absolute powerhouse of self-esteem already not to feel totally inferior before them. So we worship them because we feel inconsequential, but doing it makes us feel even worse. We make them stars, but then their fame makes us feel insignificant. I am part of this whole process as an editor. No wonder I feel soiled at the end of the day. All right, now listen, that is so Kafka-esque. She says to be human is to feel inconsequential, huh? Inconsequentiality. We, we don't have the term sin anymore. We don't have the term, we don't think of heaven and hell. But that's exactly what Kafka is saying. Every one of us has this kind of inexplicable sense of inconsequentiality, that we're uncleanness, see, uh, of, of needing to prove ourselves. So what does she say we do? Well, not everybody does it, but some people say, aha, here's a way to be clean, be pretty. There's a form of cleanness to kind of cover over the feeling inside of inadequacy, flawless skin (laughs) without spot or blemish. But but Christina Kelly says, and you would know this, of course, if you actually get around the celebrities, the beautiful celebrities, you know that they are being incredibly unsuccessful in dealing with their inconsequentiality their sense of inconsequentiality through their beauty. But the rest of us feel even worse because we can't even come close to them. Outside in doesn't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't get rid of the sense of inconsequentiality. Well, you say, not religion, not politics. I'm not into popular culture. Listen, let me, give you, let me just show you, to show you the whole range that we're all trying to cleanse ourselves outside in and it doesn't work. Let me talk to you about the ministry for a minute. Not that most of you are in it, but as soon as I show you this, you'll see that no one's immune. Why do people go into the ministry? Hmm? Noble motivations. Yeah. yeah. Some years ago, I read in a book for ministry students by Charles Spurgeon this line, don't preach the gospel in order to save your soul. I read that when I was in my 20s, and I remember thinking, what idiot would try to save the soul by preaching the gospel? But here is what I realize. You get out in the ministry, and you start to realize that if your church does well and people like you and your church grows, you feel disproportionately good. And if your church doesn't do well and the people don't really like you, you feel disproportionately devastated, you're working outside in. What you're saying is, if people like me, see, and people say, oh, how much you've helped me, then God will like me. Then I will like myself then that sense of inconsequentiality, that sense of uncleanness, that sense of not really being what I ought to be will go away. But it doesn't. Because I remember, you know, I'm a Presbyterian. Presbyterians aren't supposed to have these experiences. But uh, I was reading (laughs) Romans 117 a couple years ago where it said, he who through faith is righteous shall live. And I actually almost heard a voice that says, yeah, and he who through preaching is righteous She'll die every Sunday, every Saturday night. Outside in doesn't work. We're all trying to cleanse ourselves. But Jesus says we will never will cleanse ourselves. It's not really going to be able to heal that inconsequentiality of the heart. Howsoever we try. Well, then what's the solution? And the answer is, what do you think? 
Now, I want you to look here for our third point on verse 19. Mark, unlike Matthew, Luke, and John, almost never does editorial comments. Matthew, Luke, and John will not only tell you things that Jesus said and things that actually happened, but they'll write all their little commentaries, you know, little things about what they think about it. Mark almost never does it. This is, I think, only the second time he makes one of these comments in the first half of the book. And therefore, when Mark says something, it's really significant. And notice what he says. Don't overlook it. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. It doesn't read, Jesus said all foods were clean. If it read just, Jesus said all foods are clean, then maybe he would be meaning, maybe the meaning would be, hey, 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 hey. Jesus is saying, okay, don't make such a big fuss about these foods. Everything's all right. Go ahead, eat it. If it just says said, it might mean that Jesus was saying that the clean laws were a bad idea or let's, let's, let's get over this now, let's get beyond this, let's, you know, let's not fuss about it. That's not what he says. It reads, Jesus declared. Jesus pronounced. And, you know, the, uh, the Greek experts and commentators say Jesus is saying, as of now, I make these foods clean. And in order to understand the magnitude of what Jesus is saying, you have got to remember what we talked about last week. And if you weren't here, I'll remind you. Jesus has this incredibly high view of Scripture. In Matthew chapter 5, he says, not a jot or a tittle will pass away from the Word of God until it's all fulfilled. Not a letter will pass away from the Word of God unless it's all fulfilled. Now, Jesus, therefore, would not be looking at the clean laws, which are in the Bible, you know. They're in the Hebrew Bible. They're in the Old Testament. The Mosaic legislation, Jesus would never look at any part of God's word and say, oh, this part doesn't, doesn't, you know, we we are abolishing this. We've gotten beyond this now. He would not be saying that. The only possibility here is he's saying that the clean laws have been fulfilled. That the purpose of the clean laws to get you to move towards spiritual purification have been fulfilled. The reason you don't have to follow them the way we, they used to is because they've been fulfilled. Now, how could Jesus say that? What an incredible thing to say. How could that be? And here's how it could be. Years ago, Kathy and I heard a sermon preached by Ray Dillard, who was a friend of ours. He's passed away now. He was an Old Testament professor uh, at Westminster Seminary, and he preached a sermon in the church we were going to in Philadelphia that not only was incredibly moving, he just wept through the whole thing, but it was also had a big impact on the way in which I preach now. It was a sermon about Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah is one of the prophetic books in the Old Testament. And in Zechariah chapter 3, Zechariah is transported into the center of the temple. And this is the first thing he sees. He says, this is Zechariah chapter 3 verse 1, Then the Lord showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the Lord. Now this has got to be only one place and one day of the year. The temple had three parts to it, the outer court, the inner court, and the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies was completely surrounded by a veil, thick veil. Inside was the Ark of the Covenant. Over it was the mercy seat. And the Shekinah glory of God, the very presence and face of God, appeared over the mercy seat. And it was a dangerous place. I was reading in Leviticus where God says, if you come near the mercy seat, put a lot of incense and smoke up in the air because I appear in the cloud over the mercy seat and I don't want you to die. Now, only one person 
one day of the year was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies and actually literally stand before the Lord. And that was the high priest of Israel. And he could only do that on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And therefore, what Zechariah has been done, is, has, has happened to Zechariah, is he's been brought into the center of the temple, and he sees Joshua the high priest standing before the Lord, and the only time that could happen, the only day it could be happening, is Yom Kippur. Now, Ray Dillard, who was t- preaching this sermon, then drew on his scholarliness, his scholarship, and he talked about, uh, in great detail, the enormous amount of preparation that happened going up to the Day of Atonement. The high priest, who in this day was Joshua the high priest, the high priest a week before began his preparation. And he was put into seclusion. He was taken away from his home and he went into an apartment, as it were, where he was completely alone. A week ahead, prepare for the Day of Atonement. Why? So he wouldn't accidentally touch anything unclean. So he wouldn't accidentally eat anything unclean. The, The food was brought to him. So he'd wash. So he'd prepare his heart. And then the night before the Day of Atonement, he didn't go to bed. He didn't sleep. He stayed up all night praying and reading the Scripture to purify his soul. And then on the Day of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, he did not wear the ordinary clothes, but he wore absolutely pure white linen. But guess what happened? First, he bathed head to toe, put on white linen, went into the Holy of Holies, and sacrificed for his own sins. Then he came on out, and he bathed completely again, and he put him into white, clean linen again, and he went in again, and this time he sacrificed for the sins of all the priests, the priesthood. But that's not all. Then he would come out a third time, and he bathed again from head to toe, and he put, they put on him brand-new, clean, pure linen, and he went in finally, and he atoned for the sins of the people. And do you know that this was all done in public? The temple was crowded, and they watched all of this. Now, you say, wait a minute, what about the bathing? Well, there was a screen there. It was a thin screen, and he bathed behind the screen, but they were there. They saw him bathe. They saw him dress. They saw him go in. They saw him go out. Why? Because he was the representative before God. And they were there cheering him on, and they were there very, very concerned to make sure that everything was done in the most perfectly pure way because he was the representative before God. Now, if you know all of that, and I could have gone on a lot longer, and certainly Ray Dillard went on a lot longer, if you know about all that enormous amount of preparation so that when the high priest got in front of God, there wasn't a speck on him, there wasn't a germ on him, see, that he was as pure as pure could be, only if you understand that do you realize the second verse of this prophecy in Zechariah 3 was so incredibly, why it was so shocking. Because Zechariah looks up at Joshua the high priest, day of of atonement, standing before the presence of God in the Holy of Holies, and then he says, but Joshua was dressed in garments covered in excrement. Zechariah can't believe his eyes. He looks up, and there is the high priest on the day of atonement representing the people before God, and his, his clothes are covered in feces and bowel movement and urine. He's absolutely defiled. And the big question, I remember Ray Dillard said, the huge interpretive question is, how could that have happened? Everything in everything for a week has been moving toward him being clean. There's no way that Israel, there's no way that the high priest would have ever allowed himself, there's no way the Israelites would ever have allowed the high priest to appear before God like that. How could that be? 
And the answer is, Ray said the only answer he could think of was this, that because he was a prophet, God was giving Zechariah for a moment a prophetic vision so that he could see us the way God sees us. That in spite of all the efforts we make to try to be pure, in spite of all the efforts we to try to be good, try to be moral, to try to cleanse ourselves, it doesn't work. In the sight of God, he sees our hearts, and our hearts are full of filth. And you say, isn't that kind of unfair now? Let me... I remember something that happened to me in the early days of my uh, Christian walk as a, a college student that, that uh, actually has multiple uses. Uh, you've heard it before, but let me show you how it illustrates this. There was a young man who was, a se- was actually very active on our college campus. Uh, he was actually a sexual predator. And so those of us in a Christian fellowship on the campus were shocked when he started coming to our meetings. And after a few meetings, he loudly declared that he'd become a Christian. And he says, I'm going to walk the straight and narrow now. And he dedicated himself to sexual abstinence. And he dedicated himself to moral purity. And he did. I mean, he, he did it all. And he lived this morally you know, uh, exemplary life, and he came to Bible studies, and he came to Christian activities, but every Bible study he was in was like a power struggle. He always had to be right. He was the only one who was right. He was the only one who knew. In fact, every meeting you were ever in, every interaction you ever had with him, it was a power struggle. And then finally, we came to realize something. The fundamental structure of the human heart, if the fundamental structure of the human heart says, here's how I get my significance, power. Here's how I get my significance, power. If I feel superior to other people, if I feel like I've got power over people, then I know I'm significant. You can express that basic structure of the heart through immorality and sex, but you can also express it through morality and faith. Because, you see, the sex wasn't about sex. It was about power because as soon as he got them in bed, he lost interest in the girls. And the Christianity interest wasn't about Christ, it was about power, because there's no better way, if you're looking for power, than to get active in religion, because you have the right doctrine and you have the right truth. In other words, this heart hadn't changed. The fundamental self-centeredness of the heart, the self-righteousness of his heart hadn't changed. It had expressed itself first through immorality, now through morality, first through irreligion, now through religion. It hadn't changed. On the outside, he looked clean, but with the vision, see, God looks on the heart. God sees that the reason we are good and the reason we are bad are basically the same, self-centered, wanting people to think well of us, wanting to control God, wanting to control other people. All of our morality, all of our good works don't really get to the heart. And Zechariah suddenly realizes that no matter what we do, we're unfit for the presence of God. But just as he's about to despair, to his shock, God says this, then the Lord spoke and said, take off his filthy clothes. And he said to the high priest, see, I will take your sin off you so I can clothe you in costly garments. Listen, I'm going to bring my servant the branch and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. And Zechariah probably can't believe his ears. Instead of God striking the high priest dead, He says, I'm going to take your sin off you. I'm going to take your filthy garments off you, and I'm going to clothe you in a righteousness that is not yours. And not just you. I will send my servant the branch, and he will remove all the sin of the people in a day. And Zechariah must be saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. But for years we've been doing sacrifices. We've been doing the clean laws. You can never get the sin off you, never get the sin off you, never get the sin off you. But God is saying, Zechariah, this is a prophecy. Someday I will. 
Someday it's all over. Someday the sacrifice is over. Someday the clean laws are all over. How? And then Ray Dillard closed the sermon like this. Centuries later, another Joshua showed up, another Yeshua. Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua, it's the same word, you know, Aramaic, Hebrew, Greek, but it's the same word. Another Yeshua showed up, and he was going to pull off his own Day of Atonement. And one week before his death, one week before his Day of Atonement, Jesus began to prepare And the night before, he didn't go to sleep. But in every other way, what happened to Jesus was exactly the reverse of what happened to the Joshua, the high priest. Because instead of a whole crowd of friends cheering him on, every single person who who he loved betrayed, abandoned, or denied him. And when he stood before God, instead of getting words of encouragement, the Father forsook him. And instead of being clothed in wonderful garments, he was stripped of the only garment he had, and he was beaten, and he was killed naked. And you say, well, what about the bathing? And I remember Ray Dillard said he was bathed in human spit. Why? 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God clothed him, as it were, in our sin. He took our penalty. He took our punishment. He was the true Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world so that we, like Joshua, this high priest, can get what? In Revelation 19, we read this. Let us rejoice and be glad. Fine linen, bright and clean, is given to us to wear. This is Revelation 19. Linen, what's that about? Everyone who says, Father, accept me, not in my own righteousness, but Jesus, at infinite cost to himself, took my sins upon him, now receive me by sheer grace, and God clothes us in linen. We're all priests. Hebrews 13 says Jesus Christ was crucified outside the gate where the bodies are burned, the garbage heap, absolute uncleanness, so that we can be made clean. Religion is outside in. See, outside in. If I do all these things, then God will come in and maybe accept me and heal my heart and give me the love so I don't feel inconsequential. But the gospel is inside out. It's the other way out. It's not outside in. It's inside out. The gospel is God, through Jesus Christ, at infinite cost to himself, has clothed us in costly garments. It cost him his blood. And he loves us, and we're beautiful in his sight now by sheer grace. And to the degree you know that, that heals your heart. And then you can move out into the world not scared, not needing approval, not over-needing power, not needing at all. Religion is outside in, doesn't work. The gospel is inside out, it does. Is there anybody out here who are Lady Macbeths? You've got something very specific in your past that you feel really bad about, you feel guilty about. It was a failure of some kind. And you've been spending all of your life trying to atone for it. This is the sweet, oblivious antidote. The terrors of law and of God with me have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. But probably there's not that many Lady Macbeths out there. As I said... Most of you are New Yorkers. Most of you are more like Kafka. 
brilliant and weird. <laughs> Not particularly religious, huh? And yet you know that you're fighting that sense of your own inconsequentiality. You know? And you might be doing it through beauty or through politics. You might be doing it through morality. You might be doing it through ministry. You might be doing it through serving other people. It won't work. You say, I'm not religious, but you know what? Look how busy you are. You're, do- you're driven. You're trying to prove yourself. You're doing, doing, doing. Lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him and him alone, gloriously complete. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for giving us this assurance that Jesus Christ, our true high priest, pulled off a day of atonement to end all days of atonement. He fulfilled the clean laws, that when we receive him, we are clean in him. They're not abolished, they're fulfilled. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to appropriate this for ourselves. There are people here who have not really believed the Christian faith before. Bring them to a place where they can really receive this inner cleansing that comes from the knowledge of what your son did. But Father, there's so many of us here that we believe it, We may have believed it for years, and yet we're not appropriating it ourselves. And we're still driven. We're still working outside in. And we want the rest and the peace that comes from knowing that you love us completely, totally, freely through Jesus. Change us with these truths, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.